I've been quarantined for the past few months with my husband and father at my dad's house in the suburbs. Last week, the three of us piled into the car and we went on a socially distant scavenger hunt. We wrote up a list of superlatives to look for during our drive. For example, best holiday decorations that are still up even though it's May, or biggest surprise, or largest rock. As we drove through the town center, we saw a man in his 20s walking across the street. He was about six foot three with long, flowing blonde hair, a camel-colored leather jacket, black jeans with a strategic rip at the thigh, and ankle boots. He wasn't wearing a mask, and he was sipping on an iced coffee he'd picked up at a local cafe that was filling limited orders. This man was like a mirage. He was so out of place on this suburban street in the middle of a pandemic. Where had he come from? Where was he going? And why had he bothered putting on this meticulously assembled outfit? The whole scene was so unusual and unexpected, like seeing Fabio at a 7-Eleven. We unanimously agreed that this man checked off biggest surprise. And if I'm honest, he was probably the biggest surprise of the whole month. Not a lot has happened to us during quarantine. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. Today's episode will focus on herds. We'll explore herd immunity, a term you may have seen in the news recently related to why we should reopen the economy. And we're also going to hear about another type of herd, herds of llamas. In particular, one llama named Winter, who could be helping us fight off the coronavirus. But first, an update on whether you can get coronavirus more than once. This has been a major question mark, and one that's kept us from making broad policy decisions about who can return to normal life. We've known that some people make antibodies after they get COVID-19, but does everyone? Dr. Anya Weinberg, a professor of medicine at New York's Mount Sinai, has been studying this by looking at the concentration, or titer, of antibodies in people's blood. So one of the major unknowns in our fight against the coronavirus is whether getting the virus once makes you immune to the disease. And you and your colleagues just finished a study that offers some potentially encouraging news on that front. So what did you find? We ended up with testing a couple thousand people, and we just published our report on the first 1,300 or so that we tested. To answer your question, I'm going to divide the people that got tested into two groups. One is people who knew for sure that they had coronavirus, meaning they were swabbed or had a PCR swab at some point, which came up positive. We had a couple hundred people in that category that had their antibodies tested. And on their first test, we found that about 85% of them had a good antibody response. So what I say when I mean that is they were positive and they had a high level of antibody on our titer. And just to get even more basic, right, antibodies are immune proteins that can fight off a virus, but also can act sort of like your immune system's memory. So they'll remember that same virus. And like in an ideal world, they'd neutralize it really quickly if you ever come in contact with that virus again. 
That's correct. So, yes. Yeah, so, first of all, they are an additional point of evidence that you had SARS-CoV-2. And second, if we discover over time that they do confer immunity, then yes, presumably you'd be protected from getting infected again, or at the very least have a much milder course if you were infected again, as you said. They then asked the people who had no antibodies or low amounts of antibodies to come in and get tested again a few weeks later. Maybe those people just needed more time to allow the long-term antibodies to develop. In the people who had returned, by the time we analyzed the data, over 90, 95% of them either still were positive or were going up and had stronger response. Basically, what that means is that in the group that had confirmed known PCR COVID, all but three had antibodies when we checked them. So that's encouraging, I think, as you said, in that it does show us that most people who have this, even people with mild disease, which was the case for the vast majority of the people that we were testing, had an antibody response to this. Now, that's how most respiratory viruses work. So I would say the experts among us maybe weren't shocked by this, but it's still good since we don't know anything yet about how this particular virus behaves. This study hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, so as always, take it with a grain of salt. But basically, among patients who knew they had COVID because they'd had one of those nasal swabs, almost all of them had high levels of antibodies by their second test. That was regardless of age, sex, or the severity of their infection. And by the way, I know we've talked about antibody tests on this podcast in the past and how they're not always so reliable, but the scientists here used one of the most accurate tests currently available. Weinberg and her colleagues also tested another group of people, not just ones who had previously tested positive for COVID. Who are the people who thought maybe they had COVID, which... um I think is pretty common in New York right now. So either they had symptoms which they thought could be consistent with COVID or they lived with somebody who was confirmed and so had what we call a high-risk exposure or they their doctor told them to quarantine but they had never been tested. And in that group, um, as opposed to the first group where we had like 99% with antibodies, we had about 38% had antibodies. I will say that although there are a few reasons why they could have been negative, certainly a decent chunk of them probably never had COVID. And so it's important to remember that if you don't know for sure that you had it, don't assume that the sore throat and cough that you had two months ago was definitely this. And it's probably worth it to try to find out for sure. Yeah, basically everyone I know in New York right now is pretty convinced that they had COVID in January or early February. <laughs> I mean, look, 40% is still a good number. It's not It's not 2% and it's not even 20% like some of the recent antibody zero surveys that the governor was talking about. Um, it's a good chunk, but it is not 99%. Um, and the second thing I think that people have been asking me a lot about, and I think we are looking into a, a lot, is this finding that we had that I think is more and more out there in the literature now, that if you did have COVID 
Even if you're feeling better, you might still have a positive PCR swab for some time. So people were swabbed. They knew they were positive. They came in three weeks later for antibodies. We swabbed them again. They're still positive. What does that mean? Do they have to still isolate? Do they, are they, can they go back to work? Can they not? Um, it's something that's causing a lot of anxiety in people. And um, I think there's more and more evidence out there that those swabs, those nasopharyngeal swabs, are picking up potentially not only live virus, but also potentially fragments of virus, um, dead virus, or a virus that's been eaten up by your immune system that's still sitting there. I mean, because the idea with the swabs, right, is that it's looking just for genetic material. It doesn't tell you anything about whether that virus is like alive and kicking. All Correct. it's doing to is do that, just... you need to culture the virus. Right, right. What does somebody do with that information? I mean, what would your recommendation be to a person who weeks and weeks after they've gotten better is still coming back with a positive nasal swab test? I, I mean, this is a real life thing for me because... We did do this on hundreds of people, and then we're stuck with these results and trying to interpret all of these results. And I would say we know more now than we even did a month ago, where we really had no idea, or just two months ago. Not not yet, but almost. Um, so kind of like my answer about the antibodies. I think for now we have to be conservative, and people just have to be careful. But I do think there's more and more evidence out there that those swabs may not be picking up live virus. So to me, that's reassuring for those people that likely there's a high likelihood that that's not live virus. But until we know for sure and we have more cultures done and and more studies on that, I've certainly been counseling people to be careful because we just don't know for sure. Just because you have antibodies doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have long-term immunity, right? I mean, what what is the sort of correlation between having antibodies after getting an infection and then actually having some long-term immunity? So again, we have we don't know yet for this virus, and there are differences between different viruses in the world. Most coronaviruses and most respiratory viruses do confer some protective immunity for some time. We don't know yet that having antibodies is enough to neutralize the disease. And the researchers that at Mount Sinai that I work with are looking at that question right now. I think importantly, we also need a bit of time to watch people and see whether anybody might get sick again. We haven't had a lot of time yet. Thank goodness so far, that is not what we are seeing at all. But um, it's only been a couple months so far. So we need more time before we can say for sure. I mean, in some ways, is it as a scientist, is it kind of just a waiting game at this point to see if people who've gotten sick once get infected again? Like, is that how we're going to see if getting COVID and, you know, developing antibodies to it? Is that how we see that it actually confers immunity? Yeah, partially, yes. There's no real shortcut to just watching and seeing. Um, but there is a way to look at this in the lab, which you mentioned, called neutralization. Um, so there's a way we can take the serum from people who have antibodies and different amounts of antibodies and I'm kind of oversimplifying here, but you can sort of mix them up in a dish with the virus and see whether they are able to get rid of the virus um, 
or stop its effects. And if we see that, that's probably the best shortcut that we'd be able to get to that would be a really good sign that the antibodies do confer some protection. All right. Well, Dr. Weinberg, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. If we knew getting COVID-19 once could provide long-term immunity, we'd feel more confident predicting when enough people would be immune to protect those of us who aren't, a concept called herd immunity. You've probably heard that term thrown around quite a bit recently as a rationale for opening up the economy. Uh, Right. We need, and this is the last point, this is important. We need immune systems that are strong. We need immune systems that can fight this. We need herd immunity. So we have to work through this together to get re-engaged so we can build that up. I've seen a ton of misinformation in the news about how herd immunity works. But never fear. 538 reporter Kaylee Rogers has been speaking with biologists, public health experts, and epidemiological modelers about what herd immunity is and just how far we are from reaching it if we don't find a vaccine. Kaylee, what is herd immunity? Right. Herd immunity is the concept where If enough people in a population have immunity to a given disease or pathogen, they'll be able to sort of protect the more vulnerable people in the community. So it really is easiest to understand with vaccines, actually. So when we give the vaccine to enough of the population, that means that the few people who can't get vaccinated, like people who are immunocompromised or really young babies, will still be protected from the disease because so many other people are immune, the, the disease can't jump from one person to another. It gets sort of stopped by these dead ends, which are people that are able to fight it off without becoming contagious. It's like, uh, I mean, you, you think about a disease, the only way that it can spread is hopping from one person to another. And if it tries to hop to somebody who is immune, then that's it. It stops. It's not going to be able to hop from that immune person to somebody else. And the more people you have that are immune, the harder it is for that disease to hop to anybody that's not immune. Right. And and one of the things here is that you don't need every single person in a community, right, to, to be immune. You just need enough to be able to sort of form that barrier, to block the the most vulnerable people who might not already be immune. Right. And that's a function of how contagious a particular disease is. So if it's something that spreads very easily uh, to a lot of people, then you're going to need more people immune in order to stop the spread. If it's not as infectious, you can have fewer people and you'll get the same effect. Um, So if you think of this concept of the R-naught, which you may or may not have heard of, but it's, it's a fancy title for what really just boils down to the number of people on average that a sick, infectious, you know, contagious person is able to give the disease to during the course of them being sick. So for a disease like measles, which is really contagious, uh, that number is really high. It's between 12 and 18. So if you are sick with measles or you're contagious, you can spread it to between 12 and 18 people during the course of that disease. That's huge. And that means that 
for that disease, we need 93 to 95% of the population to be immunized in order to stop the spread because it's so infectious that even if a couple people get it, if not enough people are immune, it's going to find its way through that, that dam, so to speak. Right. Do we know what the r naught is for COVID? So we don't. Um, part of the fun of a new emerging disease is we haven't quite nailed it down yet. There's estimates sort of based on what we've seen so far, somewhere around... I've seen everything from two to three. Uh, some have estimated higher earlier on, but that's sort of where we're at ballpark. But that can change um, as we learn more about the disease. Let's say that the r naught for COVID is two to three. What does that mean about the percentage of the population that needs to have already encountered this disease in order for us to reach herd immunity? Right. So even with that sort of lower r naught, you know, measles was so much higher. Um, even with that, you'd still need to see at least 70% of the population immune to this virus in order to stop the spread. And, and some estimates are actually higher than that, somewhere between 70 and 90%. So if we had a vaccine, that would be great. We could make sure that 70 to 90% of the population is vaccinated. Uh, but without a vaccine, we're not going to be anywhere near that. So we're talking about 70% of the population being sort of the threshold for herd immunity, and that's the lower end. But once you hit that threshold, does that mean no one's getting sick after that? Right. So that's sort of a common misunderstanding of how herd immunity works. There's sort of two scenarios. There's herd immunity when you have a vaccine, where you can go in and, and vaccinate people before they're even exposed to it, so that by the time the virus gets to that population, it has a hard time moving around and it can't really spread because that threshold has already been met. When you have an active outbreak, it's a different scenario for a number of reasons. For one, it might be infecting more susceptible people first, uh, people who work in healthcare settings, for example, that might be exposed to the virus really frequently. All those people might get sick first. And then after that, if they have immunity, their susceptibility goes down, which might slow the virus a bit. But then even after we re reach that 70%, you know, the virus doesn't just like hit a wall. Um, the people who are currently sick are still sick. They're still going to spread it to a few people. It's just slowing down and sort of going over that hump at the top. Um, and so there's going to be more people that are infected and more people sick even on top of that. And then even within herd immunity, whether it's with a vaccine or, or naturally acquired, the idea is that the many protect the few. But that doesn't mean that nobody could ever get sick. You know, if you're traveling or different things or if there's small pockets of people that are not protected, you can still get outbreaks. It can still some people will still get sick. Right now, I think the official estimate is that somewhere over a million people, just over a million people in the U.S. have gotten this disease. That is nowhere near 70 percent of the, the population of the United States. I mean, how far away really are we from it? Right. So because some people can have this and not get tested for a number of reasons, maybe they didn't get sick enough, maybe they just chose not to go to a clinic, there's likely a number of cases that we haven't actually recorded yet, which is why they're starting to do these sero surveys where they measure antibodies and see whether or not you've been exposed to the virus. That's going to give us a better idea of the actual number of people who have had it. But even those surveys are not showing anything too exciting. You know, we're seeing um, the World Health Organization estimates, you know, between two and four percent of the world population. A survey in California saw a similar amount. Um, these surveys are kind of wide at this point, but we're not seeing anything anywhere close to 70 percent, even in the more um, sort of generous surveys that we've seen that are seeing more like 20 to 30 percent in certain areas. 
One of the big unknowns about COVID right now is whether getting it actually means that you're immune to the disease in the future. I mean, how could that affect this idea of herd immunity? Right. So obviously, I mean, even if you're getting some immunity for a short period of time, if it's too short, let's say it's only six months or something, we're going to end up seeing waves and waves of the disease coming back again. So even if we were able to get to that 70% threshold, um, some of those people are going to start to lose their immunity over time, and then they're going to go back into the pool of susceptible people, and then they'll get infected again, have some immunity for some time, and back and forth over and over. And so it's never going to allow the disease to really be completely squashed down. But even in New York, say, okay, so there they're saying as much as 21% of the population has already been exposed. That's still a really big gap between 20 and and 70%. Um, And even to get to that 21%, you know, New York has seen uh, 19,500 deaths. That's a huge, you know, that's one in every 400 New Yorkers dead from this disease to get to 21%. So you can imagine the kind of toll it's going to take to if we were to try and reach 70% by allowing this disease to sort of burn through the population and infect enough people that 70% end up with immunity. It's just like it's an insane cost because the death rate of this virus is just too high for, for that to be an option. What is the fatality rate for COVID? Do we know? That's another thing that's developing, uh, and we're learning more about it. The the antibody surveys, I think a lot of people were hopeful that we would find out a lot of people had had it who didn't realize it. So, you know, 50% of the population had had it. And if that was true, then the fatality rate would drop because we know how many deaths there are. But if it's coming from a much bigger pool of people, that's a much smaller percentage. Um, But in order for the fatality rate to be low enough that we could maybe consider, you know, sort of letting the virus take its course. So maybe like 0.1%. That's the fatality rate for the the seasonal flu. So we're kind of, we've made peace with the the fatality rates that come with that. In order for that fatality rate to be true, we we would have had to find out that uh, 81.5 million Americans had already had coronavirus. That's about a quarter of the population. And that's not the case. We're nowhere near that. And so the reality is the the fatality rate that we're seeing is anywhere from 0.5 up to 1%, which sounds really low, but then when you extrapolate it to the whole U.S. population, that's millions of people that would die. So as places start talking about reopening and the idea that we should, you know, loosen up social distancing and sort of just wait for herd immunity to happen, I mean, what would the actual toll of that be on America? Right. So let's go back to that 70% threshold. If we try to meet that and have 70% of the population be exposed to this virus, that would be 230 million people. Okay, a lot of people. And then with that, even if the fatality rate was one of the lower estimates we have right now of half a percent, sounds really low, right? That's still going to mean more than 1.1 million people will die before this is all over. And that's just a huge toll. Like, that's not something comparable to the seasonal flu. It's not comparable to other kinds of outbreaks that we've had. It would just be way too high a toll to pay. And that's to say nothing of the strain on the healthcare system, of people who have severe illnesses and maybe have lingering effects from that, and all of the fallout that comes from the loss of more than a million lives. I mean, that all sounds really bleak. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> so are we screwed? I mean, what do we what do we do with this information? Do we don't have a vaccine yet? Do we just keep quarantining forever? What do we do? Right, and that's obviously not an option either for for a number of reasons. But I, I don't think that those are our only choices there to to either let you know more than a million people die or stay in our houses the rest of our lives. There, the more research we do, the better understanding we'll have. We'll be able to know where outbreaks are emerging, who's had antibodies, whether those actually protect. And if we're able to start to do more widespread testing and do things like track, trace, and isolate, where you're able to detect who has it, detect who they might have spread it to, and isolate all those people, then we're going to be able to start slowly opening things up and and getting back to some semblance of normalcy. Kelly, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's always great to, to hear what you're learning. Thank you so much. If you want an even deeper understanding of herd immunity, Kaylee and our wonderful colleagues at 538 developed a herd immunity interactive that you can play with on our website. You can change the r naught death rate, and duration of immunity for a fictional disease that we're calling fictionitis, and see how the herd immunity threshold changes. Check it out at 538.com. We open today's show with good news, and we're going to close it with good news as well. Joining me to talk about it is Dr. Jason McClellan, a professor of molecular biosciences at the University of Texas at Austin. So, Dr. McClellan, you've been looking into taking antibodies from a llama named Winter and using those antibodies to temporarily prevent coronavirus um, in people. Um, and I have to say that is the most delightful research I've heard about in a while. Thank um, you. So what made you and your colleagues uh, do this study and look into llamas as a potential, you know, hope for beating coronavirus? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, llamas have been uh, uh, um, sort of mined for antibodies for for decades now. Really, uh, they were discovered to have uh, regular conventional antibodies that that humans and all other animals have, as well as this alternative type of antibody they they make that that's much smaller. They're sort of referred to as nanobodies, and this allows them to access small pockets or crevices on the the surface of uh, viruses and viral proteins that maybe the conventional antibodies that we make don't have access to because they're too big. Um, and, and these small proteins are also very stable. Uh, potentially, they can be uh, nebulized and, and put it into an inhaler, which can be really helpful for respiratory pathogens. McClellan and his colleagues in Belgium started this work a few years ago, before COVID-19 appeared on the scene. Our goal at the time, because we started, we started, I think the immunizations back in 2016, we were trying to isolate a single llama nanobody that could broadly bind and neutralize or inhibit all coronaviruses. They injected a llama named Winter with just the spike proteins from both SARS and MERS. Unfortunately, they didn't find a universal antibody. But recently, they found that in the lab, a nanobody they'd discovered for SARS could actually neutralize the virus that causes COVID-19 and prevent it from infecting cells. 
In the future, these nanobodies could be used to prevent infections in healthy people, or even treat infections in sick people. The antibody therapies can be useful for people going into a hot zone、uh, where there's a known outbreak, potentially for healthcare workers. If, if we know the hospital is about to get inundated with patients, you could load up the healthcare workers and protect them for one to two months during the peak. And they can also be used potentially post-infection as treatment. So generally, there's a narrow window of time, several days or, or a bit longer, where after infection,、um, you could you could administer the antibodies, and that might help prevent some of this severe disease. Maybe it it prevents hospitalization or it decreases the number of days in the hospital.、Uh, and so both options are, are possible and will need to be tested.、Um, and, and that's what some of the next steps are. Now there are similar studies going on where doctors are taking antibodies from recovered COVID patients and giving those to sick people to help speed their recovery. In fact, that's what Dr. Weinberg from earlier in the show is doing with all the antibodies from patients in her study. The difference here is that now that McClellan and his colleagues have isolated the nanobody, they can make it in the lab. They don't need any more llama donors. We we, we no longer need.、Uh, actually, I think Winter is retired now, so we don't need to go back to her. There's also a possibility that these tiny antibodies from llamas and other camelids, as they're called, could be more potent than human antibodies. For our,、uh, respiratory syncytial virus, which is one of the other viruses we work on,、uh, I think the most potent、uh, antibody that's been isolated is the the one from the from the camelid. Regardless, it'll take a while before we see these llama nanobodies approved for use in people. The scientists haven't even started clinical trials yet. But in the future, they could end up being an important tool in our COVID response. All thanks to Winter. What does Winter look like? <laughs>、uh, yeah, she's she's a a darker colored、uh, llama. People have described her her eyelashes as being gorgeous、uh, and uh, enviable.、Uh, yeah, was, we we do have. That's it for this episode of Podcast Nineteen. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcastnineteen at gmail dot com. That's askpodcast one nine at gmail dot com. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Chad's a great editor, but this week he pointed out various flaws in my scavenger hunt game. Yes, we were playing collaboratively. Deal with it, Chad.